0: Anything that you teach somebody, you have to have in mind what they're going to do differently. Otherwise, you shouldn't even have opened your mouth.
1: You're listening to The Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters, to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the episodes then head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get all the future episodes downloaded direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back, folks. We've got uh, episode 16 for you today. And as we're going to air, we're in the middle of the G20 conference here in Brisbane, Australia. So plenty of Rotary Wing uh, activity in the skies above Brisbane. On the US contingent, we've got uh, three Ospreys. So the V-22s have been floating around, uh, obviously supporting uh, Obama's arrival. And there's two uh, US Marine Sea Kings. So obviously Marine One, whichever one carries uh, Obama in. So basically what happened today is the Air Force One landed at Ambly, which is the local Air Force base. And uh, President Obama basically got out, jumped on the Sea Kings, and then the uh, three Ospreys and Sea Kings took him into town. So on the Australian side, we've had the Blackhawks training for the last uh, week and a bit here around Brisbane. And there's several photos of them kicking around the internet, doing approaches and dropping troops off and also having our uh, troops suspended on ropes underneath them. Uh, airspace-wise, there's about a, it's, uh, special procedures within 90 nautical miles of Brisbane Airport from surface up to flight level uh, 600. From the field where we operate from, we fly from, uh, we need a flight plan for any flight uh, even if it's circuits, and it has to be in 60 minutes before we take off. And we've actually got a police stationed at the airfield that need to come out and give us a look over before we depart, as well as needing a squat code before we go anywhere. So definitely not taking any chances, and it's quite a, a big deal here locally. Another big deal is Movember. We're about halfway through now. Uh, so halfway mark, I've got a photo up on the Facebook page of my mustache. Uh, if you want to donate a couple of bucks to my campaign, you can do that via rotarywingshow.com forward slash mo, so M-O. That'll take you to the official Australian Movember charity site, and it's raising money for men's health. Look all the links I mentioned in this episode and in previous episodes. You can find those in the show notes uh, for episode 16 at rotarywingshow.com. The other thing I've got coming up this week is my instructor rating renewal uh, is due again, and that, that's booked in for uh, next Saturday. So I'm doing the, the SWOT and basically doing some study for that. So I've got uh, Wagon Donk's uh, Principle of Helicopter Flights here on the desk and working my way through that. The other little really good handy tool I've been using though uh, for the last couple weeks is a little tool called Anki. So it's A-N-K-I. And what it is is a spaced repetition flashcards app that works on your desktop or your mobile and it syncs online and and as you go through the cards and you get them correct, uh, it basically then spaces them out over a longer period and it's one of those methodologies that's supposed to uh, help lock in what you learn and then refresh it before it fades away before you forget it. So the website for that is ankisrs.net. And again, there'll be a link in the show notes for that. But yeah, it's basically a, a cool little app for desktop and your mobile, just to be able to, to quickly learn you know, limits and checklists and things like that. Which is a really good segue into today's interview with our guest, Philip Greenspun. So Philip is a flight instructor, among many other things. He flies with East Coast Aero Club out of Hanscom Field. So we're back in the northeastern uh, USA, uh, and the field's about 20 kilometres just outside of Boston. And we're back in pretty much the same vicinity as episode 10 when we were talking with Heather Howley from Independent Helicopters. Uh, so I like was about an hour and a half to the west of Boston with Heather, and these guys are just outside of Boston. So I talk about this interview when I first... I actually did my instructor writing back in 2009. I was Googling a heap of information about how to be a, you know, a good or a great instructor, and what are the best ways to actually teach you the different flight sequences. And that's when I came across Philip's articles, and particularly his one about teaching people how to hover. So Philip holds an ATPL, he's a CFII, so an instrument instructor on both fixed wing and rotary wing. He's been involved in the education field long before he got anywhere near started in aviation. So as an electrical and software engineer, he lectured at MIT, as well as authored several uh, programming books. So Philip was a really early developer and evangelist for collaborative software, so things such as forums and the forerunners for things like Google Docs. So next time you're arguing online at at P. Prune or Blade Slappers about the best way to, to skin a cat, you might have Philip to partly thank for that. And if you read Philip's articles, and after you've listened to him talk today, you'll find he brings a really deliberate and thoughtful education-based approach to flight training. So let's get stuck into the interview. So Philip Greenspan, welcome to the Rotary Young Show. And again, thanks for having the time to chat with us today. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Philip, like I was telling you before we started the call that... um, you know, you do a lot of writing and I guess we'll talk about your, your previous careers before you got into the flying and the, the lecturing that you do. And that's how I first came across your material. And ever since when I've been doing searches online through Google, quite frequently uh, your pages and your articles have come up. So it's just one of those feedback things there. But The first article, as I said, was, was in 2009. You wrote one about how to teach hovering. And it's quite different to how most folks would learn to hover and most instructors would do it. So I was going to kind of Start off with that, and then we can circle around to a few different bits and pieces. So can you go through what you wrote in in that article about teaching people to hover and and how you do it, and if you've changed anything since then?
0: Well, you know, it started off when uh, an instructor at our flight school managed to wreck out on on R-22 while um, ostensibly teaching a student to hover on the second lesson. And, you know, I questioned him, you know, why would you let the student... Get so far out, you know. They they had the helicopter thirty feet uh, up in the air. They had the helicopter at kind of extreme bank angles and pitch angles, and you know, I questioned him as to, well, wh- what are you doing? You know, why why would you do this? Why are you letting the student get this far? And he said, well, they're learning. You know, I said, well, what are they learning? And he said, well, you know, the effect of the control. So I went back and thought about, well, what do we really need to teach when we're teaching hovering, and. I realized very quickly, you know, it can't be that they are learning the effect of the controls and that's why they're doing such a bad job for five or 10 hours. It's gotta be something else because, you know, I can always teach a current airplane instrument pilot to hover the helicopter on the first lesson. What's the difference between that person and a novice pilot in a helicopter. You know, they, they, neither of them have ever flown a helicopter before. They don't know what the controls do and how much you move on the control versus what it does to the helicopter. So I realized the difference was that the airplane pilots are very sensitive visually to seeing small attitude changes. And if they see a small change, they'll fight it with a control input. And for the first uh, five or ten minutes, their control inputs will be wrong or too big or too early or too late. But you know, after those five or ten minutes, they're able to translate their visual skill and seeing what the right attitude looks like into uh, holding the helicopter in that attitude. so I said, "Look, you're trying to teach them a visual skill, so it doesn't help for them to see the helicopter moving through ten degrees of uh, pitch attitude and twenty five degrees of uh yeah. bank so that really changed uh I think the way people were teaching at our at our school and uh, it is better to take the helicopter back as soon as it gets kind of out of the normal range of where helicopters should be hovering and it also helps to tell the students you know this is not a new maneuver that you're learning if you can hold the helicopter at a constant pitch attitude then that's a hover and it's exactly the same skill that they've been practicing in midair it's just that it's a little more sensitive when you're close to the ground you know, the uh, the effect of having the nose down a little bit is not that, you know, you go faster and you descend a little bit. It's that, you know, you're going to be moving over the ground when you didn't want to be or didn't expect to be. So uh, it's an easier transition for students to know that the hovering is the same task as uh, midair.
1: And one of the big takeaways I guess I took when I was reading through that and then going out and, and looking at that as a, as a new instructor was at that point in someone's career as a helicopter pilot and a couple of flights on the belt, we're not teaching them how to recover from unusual attitudes or extreme attitudes. As you said, we're just teaching them to pick up those tiny uh, changes off from uh, from zero zero, or essentially from straight and level. Right. And to, yeah, expect them to be able to recover from a, you know, as you said, a super high nose or a, a roll attitude is probably yeah, a bit too much for them at that stage.
0: Yeah, and it just didn't have any teaching value. And that was the thing. It only was, or, or was it putting the helicopter at risk. You know, an R-22 on a summer day doesn't have a lot of reserve power. So if it builds some inertia up towards the ground, it uh, probably probably will keep going until it hits the ground. That's not so true in an r forty four. So, yeah, so they were putting the helicopter at risk, which might be okay if there's some pedagogical reason. So we do put the helicopter at risk from time to time, you know, doing a steep approach. If the engine were to quit, you know, the helicopter would probably be bent. But there is some teaching value to that, whereas here, you know, there was no teaching value. And yet uh, the helicopter was at risk and the student was burning up a lot of extra time that they were paying for for no reason.
1: All right, Philip, and you're, you're based in Boston at the moment. Can you just talk a little bit about um, where you're doing the flying training at and a bit about the company there?
0: Yes, so I work for East Coast Aero Club, which is about a 30-year-old flight school. It's where I learned to fly airplanes starting about 13 years ago, and the school got a couple of helicopters, so I began to learn helicopters. We're at Hanscom Field, which is the busiest general aviation Airport in the Boston area. It's not really practical to operate a little flight school at Logan Airport where the international flights come in. So this is an airport that's about I guess uh, twenty five kilometers northwest of Boston. Uh, it's in you know an area of a lot of suburbs and high tech companies and stuff. so it's just packed with Gulf streams and other business jets, two flight schools, a lot of privately owned airplanes. It's a big runway. It's a 7,000 foot long runway. And do, what do you don't you don't use feet for runway in Australia anymore, do you? So I guess it's about 2,000 meters.
1: Yeah, it, it changes. Um, sometimes we it's into backwards and forwards. Okay.
0: Yeah, but it's a big enough runway to operate a 747 uh, <laughs> if it's light. And uh, the military operates some airplanes there too. It's an it's an active air force base. It uh doesn't have any real base airplanes but still the military brings airplanes in from time to time. So we have a very busy airport with a control tower and uh lots of Gulf Streams, you know, heading out to Florida or uh California or even inter- international. Um and uh it's you know it's a good place to fly, but it's very expensive. You know, hangars are expensive, fuel is expensive, so that's the downside. But it is very convenient to um, people who live in the Boston suburbs are in Cambridge, right across the river from Boston.
1: And I miss it if you said how many helicopters you have there.
0: We have two R forty fours now. Since we, since, since we wrecked the R twenty two, now we're now we're back to our two R
1: forty fours. Gotcha. culture, and, and, and you said that's where you first got your first taste or your first experience of the helicopters was there at East Coast.
0: Yes, I learned to fly in the R twenty two, and then I was an instructor in an R twenty two at East Coast Air Club. I'm, I'm still surprised that I'm alive after teaching auto rotations uh, for hundreds of hours in the R22, but I guess I was lucky.
1: And you just re- you've written a recent article on auto rotations as well.
0: Again, that you've got a, a slightly different approach to it. I have. I guess in interviewing instructors, they seem to greatly overestimate what a student can do and what a student can learn. You know, the idea that an instructor can sit there and tell the student, you know do this and this and this and this, you know. I think you, as a teacher, you know, maybe every 10 seconds you can say one thing to a student that the student will remember and implement and uh, focus on. But you have to really pick what you're telling them. And usually, the most valuable things you can tell them are to, you know, make a power adjustment or make an attitude adjustment. Anything else, like, well, look at your airspeed, or you know, you should be going faster. You know, you're just convincing. You're persuading the student to actually fly worse by looking inside instead of outside at the horizon, which is their attitude indicator in the helicopter. We do have an instrument trainer, but you know if they're just a primary student, of course or, or doing autos they're they're not supposed to be using the attitude indicator for that. they're supposed to be looking outside. so yeah, for autos, I guess the standard approach is the you know the student's supposed to do the scan of look outside look at the airspeed, look at the RPM, look outside, look at the airspeed, look at the RPM, maybe look at the a-strings. So people were trying to convince students to do a scan of four items. And I realized, well, that that means only spending a quarter of the time maintaining the constant aircraft attitude. And that's absolutely the most important thing in an auto rotation, like most maneuvers, is the aircraft attitude. So you really want to spend pretty minimal time doing anything other than uh, watching the horizon and making sure that you know the nose stays in about a 70 knot attitude. So I started uh, pointing out that, well, the auto rotation is a pretty quick maneuver, and probably only about uh, two or three times during that maneuver should the student be looking inside for any reason. There's really not much of value that's on the gauges, especially in an R44. It's pretty hard to overspeed. If you had the collective all the way on the floor, it might go a little bit over the red line, but any amount of cracking of the collective will keep the RPM from going over the red. And then, you know, in terms of getting underneath the uh, sort of 90% where things might get dangerous, that's very unlikely as well. So they don't need to be fixated on the RPM gauge. Similarly, speed, you know, being off by five knots is not a big deal. It's much more important not to be Um, oscillating up and down. As you've probably seen if the entry to the auto is good then the auto rotation will probably be pretty good. So there again it's just uh, better to keep reminding the uh, student to look outside, look outside, look outside. Uh, Oftentimes when I'm teaching actually I'll, I'll try to either cover stuff or just tell them look never look inside. If you need to if you want a reading from one of these uh, gauges or instruments inside, then, then you ask me. I'll tell you you know, what the airspeed is, but I don't want you looking at the airspeed indicator.
1: It's funny because you get used to it, but I remember back to the first all days I did, and the whole thing was just a blur. It was basically, you know, the throttle went off, the collective went down, and then all of a sudden we were on the ground and, and kind of, it could have been, you know, 20, 30 seconds in between, but it was, it was just, it disappeared within a, a second or two when I was a student. So you do get completely maxed out when you're doing those first
0: couple of autos. Yeah, so the idea that, you know, you're going to be able to absorb all these factors and these procedures, um, you know, it's uh, it's fanciful to think that somebody who has 15 helicopter hours can actually do more than uh, just sort of hang on and keep a roughly constant attitude. We even tell people, you know, enter at 75 knots because that way the... uh, 75-knot power-on attitude will be about the same as the 70-knot power-off attitude. So you just don't have to do anything. You don't have to change anything from what you see. Just keep that fake picture.
1: Phil, something I really enjoy about your writing and also just listening as you're talking is you've mentioned a couple of times you've gone back and interviewed and you really sort of sat down and thought about the teaching process and what students go through and that's one of the things, instructor on the course and, and going through. We kind of get you know taught the uh, demonstrate direct uh, monitor type method and things like that. But there's not a, a huge amount of detail out there and available for uh, pilots and instructors on like the very best way to teach something from a you know a human teaching perspective. Uh, so that's something I really enjoyed. In your bits and pieces and i've got it you know i can only guess it comes back to your experience outside of flying and the the engineering side where it's such a deliberate uh, thought process so can you talk a little bit about how you've seen
0: your previous life blending in with the aviation side of things sure well i studied mostly electrical engineering and computer science at mit here in boston the massachusetts institute of technology and I was an early developer of Internet applications, uh, going back even to the early 80s, before the web. I was just uh, in love with the idea of computers, uh, a computer server coordinating people working together. And then when the web came out, I said, oh, this is great. I'm going to build everything uh, using web browsers, and web browsers are going to take over from desktop applications. You'll have a collaborative word processor. You'll have a collaborative spreadsheet. Nobody will be using Microsoft Office anymore. I was probably predicting, you know, in 1993 that Microsoft Office would be dead and gone and replaced by something like Google Docs by, you know, 1998. <laughs> so I think, yep. I think I was off by about 20 years, but um, it, the trend seems to be in that direction towards, you know, server-supported collaboration. And because I was one of the few people at MIT who was interested in the web and the internet, uh, towards the late 90s, when students were wanting to know how to build stuff like Amazon.com, I was asked to develop a course on that. So I did develop a course on how to use a relational database management system behind a web server, how to coordinate thousands of simultaneous users, how to build online communities where they can all be on the server at once contributing their perspectives, and um, oh, no, I went into the class probably the, the second day. The second day that I was teaching this class, I'm, I show up in the classroom and I've got my lecture all prepared. I'm going to teach these people. They're sitting there, and then send them home with their homework. And I got about halfway through this lecture, and I realized, you know, what am I doing here? And there's only about 30 students in the class. I have all of their email addresses. I could, if I wanted to broadcast some information to them, I could just email it to them, and they can read it three times faster than they can listen. I can modify the textbook, which is on my web server, so you know the class time shouldn't be used for me talking to them. Um, that made sense a thousand years ago when the university was a new idea. It doesn't make sense today in the age of the Xerox machine and the internet and the email and the web. So I. Um, that was it, that was my last lecture in class. I okay. said okay, now class cl- class time is going to be used for students to present their designs and for other students to learn how to criticize their designs in real time, which is much more like a, what an engineering meeting at Google would look like, you know, when a team comes in, they they show the design for a new system or a prototype of a new system and the other engineers talk. So, um yeah, so I've always, I guess, questioned, you know, what is the most efficient use of uh, learners' time? And I actually designed a little computer science school back in 2000 where people who already had degrees from a university, but, you know, maybe it was in poetry, could come and learn computer science, a uh, standard undergraduate curriculum in about a year. And I thought, well, should they take m- multiple classes at once? That doesn't make sense. You know, they should probably take only one class at a time, and then when they've mastered it, they can move on. And should they go home and do homework, by themselves? Well, what if they get stuck? So we actually set things up so it's like an office environment. Students could sort of show up at 9, leave at 6, work side by side. Uh, There was one course every month, basically, and it was very successful, virtually all those people. There are about 35 of them. You know, they're all working software engineers today, even though they started off, uh, you know, as English majors or whatever.
1: Okay, and have you seen, have you leveraged that in a pilot training setting? How, how, if if you walked into East Coast and and looked at your program and and the way you do things, uh, Philip, how would it differ maybe from other flying schools?
0: I don't know how different it is. Um, You know, I'm hoping that, Some of the teaching philosophy that um, I've developed on my web server has uh, trickled down to some of the other instructors. You know, I can't claim a monopoly on uh, brilliant ideas at our flight school. You know, at at East Coast Aero Club we have Paul Cantrell. He's been teaching in Robinsons, I think, for 30 years since they were just about new. And, you know, he does all the crazy auto rotations, zero airspeed stuff that you might do if you took that factory course but you know instead of a one-hour flight you know you can fly with paul every weekend and be doing these insane auto rotations and throttle chops I- i'm not sure why he's still alive again <laughs> he's just done most of that in the r22 over his his career and then we have mike rhodes who's a, also been doing this for probably 25 years at least who's an FAA designated an, an examiner so i've done my small share you know i've i've uh got the curriculum approved by the FAA for teaching under what we call part 141, a more structured um, way of teaching. But uh, I don't want to say that we're that different from other flight schools. Um, I do think that we have, like I said, a a more thoughtful approach. We question instructors about why they're teaching what they're teaching. There's a, a required by regulation Briefing for students in the R44. For anybody who's going to fly an R44, you have to learn about energy management, and you have to learn about um, blade stall and low rotor RPM. I don't know if you have something like this. So it was it was put in after a lot of accidents in the R22. And you know, we find instructors that we hire, so they've come oftentimes from other flight schools, and we say, well, why are you telling this to the student? What do you you know why are you doing it? And They'll say, "Well, it's required by the regulation." Well, how are you hoping it'll change their behavior? And they can't answer. And I say, "Well, look, anything that you teach somebody, you you have to have in mind what they're going to do differently. Otherwise, you shouldn't even have opened your mouth. There's no reason in talking, no reason to talk to them unless they're going to change their behavior." So you, you know, so we we go through it and talk about energy management and autos, and I would say well, look, why is this going to change their behavior? What are they going to do differently now that they have this knowledge? And for me, the answer is, you know, they'll they'll fight their natural inclination to uh, pull back on the cyclic as they're getting near the ground and, and bring their airspeed down, let's say, from 70 knots to 50. Once they know that the energy and the, the kinetic energy and the forward airspeed is so important, and arresting their descent they'll be more likely to preserve their forward energy on uh, their airspeed or certainly for mass bumping you know we have to give them this whole lecture on mass bumping and you ask students uh, you ask instructors you know what's going to change and they say well you know they'll learn that you know when they get into a mass bumping situation that they should uh, not uh, go left cyclic they should pull back first I said, well, look, the accident records show that people who had that training in the military and elsewhere, they, they didn't react. You know, their natural reactions were too strong to, you know, they could not be overcome by the trained procedures. So I said, you know, when I teach them that, I'm hoping that what they'll learn to do is just not fly when it's super gusty and bumpy. And if they do, to keep the airspeed low, because you're much less likely to get in the mass bumping if you're going you know, in an R44, about 90 knots or less, or if they're flying with a photographer who might, you know, unload the uh, ship by knocking the cyclic, you know, they'll guard the cyclic more carefully by learning that. So, you know, basically looking for um, changes in behavior and not trying to, you know, not imagining if they're if they're already going to do something naturally, don't uh, don't worry about it. You don't have to say anything. Similarly for the, the low rotor RPM. You know, if if you're operating in a Robinson at sea level, it's virtually impossible to get into that. You have so much extra power. So I'll say, well, look, the whole point of this lecture is to show them how bad it's going to be if they try to go to an off-airport confined area and try to land when they're heavy up high or on a hot day or both. So basically what I'm hoping they'll change is they'll really look at the performance charts carefully if they're going off-airport. You know, I'm... Not going to try to get them uh, to, uh, you know, look at the charts really carefully if they're landing, uh, you know, at, at this massive airport, the huge cleared area with mile and a half long runways, because they'll always be able to take off and land from here.
1: All right, Philip. So two things on that. Then, do you take a similar approach to uh, teaching checklists? Because again, students can just learn the checklist by rote. As opposed to actually going into each individual item and looking at the what's happening and, and why you're doing that item.
0: Yes, to some extent. Uh, I think I really one thing I like to grill instructor applicants on is, you know, why would you turn off the why would you throw the hydraulic switch and see if you can disable the hydraulics? You know, why would you want to do that? And a remarkable number of instructors, and remember, they come to us. For an interview with 250 hours, at least they say they have no idea why they're doing it. And you know, I'll try to walk them through the parts of the system, and it'll take quite a long time before they can come up with the answer. That you know, what if one of the three servos sticks? That's why you. Need it. That's why you need the ability to disable the hydraulics. So yes, you know, since I was a, I've been a jet pilot, and I fly a Pilatus pc 12 right now, oftentimes as part of a two-pilot crew. Uh, I'm very uh, I'm very checklist oriented although uh, for something like the Robinson I actually I'm I'm more interested in the final flow check that is one difference between our flight school I think and others I'm actually more interested in the final flow check starting at the compass and going down to every gauge and every switch including the fuel gauges I'm more interested in that than I am in the Robinson checklist because I think if you skip out on you know, testing the Sprag clutch. You know, I, I've, I've flown 2,000 hours in Robinsons, and I've never uh, had a problem with the Sprague clutch, but I've tested it every flight. But, you know, plenty of people get into trouble because something's not set right, because uh, their fuel is too low. So I actually stress a flow, a jet-like flow, top to bottom of checking every gauge before departure, which is not really a checklist thing. So I, I associate you know, check, checklist religion more with a um, two-pilot crew and a jet. For the Robinson, I'm kind of more interested in this pre takeoff flow check.
1: Okay, happy with that. And um, in your classroom briefings before you guys go out, do you do a, a board brief? Is it a PowerPoint? Um, do you have paper notes? If we sat there and watched you do a briefing, how, how,
0: how would it run? We, I think we usually use... Um, you know, a printed out version of a lesson plan and uh, just a whiteboard. So it's not that extensive. I wouldn't say it's, you know, military-like. We just go through what each maneuver should like look like, introduce the, any new maneuver on the blackboard, on the whiteboard, I should say. So I think you're talking about, you know, a 20-minute 20-minute um, briefing before a flight and, uh, and a 10-minute debrief. So it's not too elaborate.
1: Okay, that's just interesting. Seeing different people's methods on that. Uh, something else going to be interesting for flight schools, and again because of your computing background, I imagine you've looked into it quite a bit. There is a like a flight school management, um, flying log booking type software. So you guys are running a, a pretty well a, a paperless office almost, or as far as a, a booking and a, a student records go, at East Coast.
0: I wouldn't say for student records. I mean, we have a scheduling system. We were using Site Schedules Pro, now we're using Aero Calendar, I think. Actually, for a while, the school ran using uh, some software that a team of two of my students at MIT developed, um, but they both got jobs at Google, and they were too busy to keep maintaining it. So after about three years, uh, Mark, the owner, switched to one of these commercial uh, systems. But in terms of student records, you know, it's really their logbook that's the record. And, you know, we will sign the lesson plans and put them in a filing cabinet so we have those. But I, I wouldn't say that we're any great model of uh, information technology. It's uh, just uh, electronic scheduling and then uh, there's some kind of computer billing system, but I'm not involved with that. Okay, which software were you guys using? I think it's called Arrow Calendar now for, this, for the scheduling.
1: Okay, that's one for folks to check out. So you mentioned you've flown the, the jets, and I know you've done a bit of gliding and things like that too, but is there a, a particular favorite machine you have or a particular, you know, your favorite experience aviation-wise looking back?
0: Well, one of my favorite experiences recently was flying right seat in my friend's uh, Air Phenom 100 and me- measuring the interior sound level at 76 decibels, you know, barely, barely louder than a sports car inside. And, in the cruise. So I love quiet airplanes, so I've really enjoyed some of the jets, like the Cessna Mustang and the Phenom 100. I'm typerated in the, the Mustang. Also in the Canada regional jet, I remember I flew uh, regional jets for Delta for a little while, for a Delta Airlines subsidiary called Comair. And um, this was back in 2008. It was a really hot day. <clears throat> and we were, we picked up this super grumpy freight pilot from uh I guess I don't know where he maybe he was commuting to work. So we were going back to Cincinnati from Portland, Maine, and he was hitching a ride and the airplane was full. We had fifty people in the back plus the flight attendant. So there was nowhere for him to sit except in the jump seat. So he's in the cockpit with us for this I don't know, it's about a three hour flight maybe. And he found out I was new and he just went on and on about what a terrible job it was and what kind of an idiot was I to think that uh, you know I could start a career in the airlines and Kind of a fool would want to work for $19,000 a year, which is entry-level regional jet uh, pay in the U.S. And I pointed to this uh, massive duct that we have in the cockpit that was spewing out air conditioning, and I said, "That's all that I need to love this job. You know, <laughs> I, I've never flown an airplane that had air conditioning before. I'm, I'm so happy, just you know, not dripping with sweat like I would be in a Cirrus or a Robinson." It's and, uh, uh, sometimes it's the little things. Yeah. So right now I'm enjoying the Pilatus. Um, the PC12 is uh, a fun airplane. You know, I've always for airplanes that I've all you know ever operated privately, it's always been a question of who or what are we going to leave behind? You know, and the Pilatus can hold up to 11 people. It's got a bathroom. You can throw bikes in. It's it's a little bit on. You know, it's noisier than the jet, which I don't love, and of course it's slower, but. Usually, we're kind of running around regionally, uh, so that's not a huge deal uh, but it's it's really nice to uh, be able to take everybody
1: and where have you gone? I know a, and again, back on the riding side, like if anyone wants to fly, I think it's from Boston or Alaska where you've written up the the guide, but uh you know, you've got quite a lot of information there, but where in the world is the, the flying taking you?
0: Well, I mean, I have definitely been all over North America, you know, up to Alaska, down the Baja Peninsula in Mexico, down to the Caribbean and back to Boston. And then I've done a little bit of flying, you know, in uh, countries like France and England and Argentina. Uh, Israel actually is very interesting. Israel is exactly the opposite of the U.S. In the U.S., all the airspace is open. And there's a little tiny bit of, uh, you know, there's this tiny percentage of airspace that's restricted or reserved for the military. In Israel, you know, the whole country is about the size of New Jersey. It's, it's uh, ridiculously small Israel. The entire country is closed off because, um, you know, it's either commercial airspace to get the airliners in and out of their uh, international Ben Gurion airport or it's military airspace for people to practice in their, uh, fighter jets or whatever. Um, so basically the general aviation there is just a handful of little routes and you have to be, I don't know, probably within a hundred meters at the center of the route or the controllers will, uh, call you up and yell at you in Hebrew. Of course they don't speak English, uh, except at the international airport. So you can pretty much only fly with, uh, a local Israeli pilot, but again, you'd have to do that anyway. So that's, Israel's probably the strangest flying that I've done just because it's, uh, it's, they almost turn uh, Cessnas into into trains, you know, they might as well put up tracks in the sky because you cannot leave your track.
1: Sure. I'm guessing the GI industry is not 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 a big thing there.
0: It's not that big, although actually, what people they're pretty passionate about it. One thing they can do is they can escape across the Mediterranean. You know, they can go to Cyprus or Turkey or Greece or something. You know, that's that's one thing they do if, if you don't mind flying over water in your little Cessna. Fair enough. Uh, I right, Philip, a couple
1: of other your passions. Um, we'll, we'll stick with the writing, but then we we'll might talk a little bit about photography. But in 2006, I you know, see so you got a, a media award by the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Was that to do with your blog writing?
0: You know, I can't even remember. It probably was related to some of the stuff that I've been writing up on aviation. I honestly can't remember what it was for. Fair enough.
1: In the photography I mean, side. The, oh, you know,
0: I'm, not, I'm more interested. You know what makes me happy is not winning an award. Is getting an email from somebody who says... I, you know, this article of yours really helped me. It saved me a huge amount of time, and I'm grateful. I mean, that's why I have my surfer, I think. You know, it'd be a tragedy if somebody else had to grope around blindly the way I did. You know, I I feel like, I think there's a Chinese proverb that, you know, experience is the teacher of fools. So, you know, I've had all this experience, and I don't want other people to have to blunder about in the dark the way I have. And, and that's really why my... Why I write is to save other people time. So, so I'm very happy when somebody says, "Wow, you know, this is just what I need to you know, help me decide what airplane to buy, or help me decide how to learn." Or, um, you know, the, a lot of flight schools have grabbed our uh, 141 syllabus and modified it to get their FA approval. So, that's that's what makes me happy. Not 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 some kind of award.
1: Well, as I said, yeah, you know, I've definitely benefited from your writing. So thank you. And, and folks, if you're listening to this at, at home and uh, at, later on as the interview recording and you've read some of Philip's uh, work and, and got something from it, then please drop him a, an email or leave a note on the, uh, the show notes for this episode. <laughs> so Ben, actually, do you want to just mention your, um, your website so folks can go check it out?
0: Oh, the web address? It's uh, just Philip modest, my modestly titled website, phil, philip.greenspun.com.
1: Perfect, and it's a pretty modest-looking website too. When you when folks get there, like you haven't uh, gone all out in um, design. It's very much back to your roots, I guess, of um, of early internet
0: web blogging. But uh, yeah, and that's well, true. The 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 well, my email address hasn't changed since 1976, and the HTML template for my um, web page really hasn't changed since 1993. Um, but I did add, uh, I think I added a little bit of a style sheet to put uh, some margins on the pages um, maybe 10 years ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, we'll look! While we're talking about then, do you have some quick stats on your web traffic? Have you looked recently at what kind of traffic you're getting through that site?
0: I haven't been looking that recently, but I guess um, I think it's about 200,000 readers a year is what Google Analytics says. So it's not huge, but, um, you know, Photo.net, my, the, I split off from my core site, um, this, uh, photography tutorial site called Photo.net, which gets about 60 million page views a month and about 4 million visitors, I think, according to the standard metrics, although I think the standard metrics double count, you know, somebody coming from home on a Monday and coming from work on a Wednesday, uh, looks like uh, yeah, it counts people, two different but, uniques. So, yeah, so I think it's probably about 2 million people who visit that every month. But I, I, sold, I spun that off and I finally sold that off in 2007. That, that was the last smart thing I did in the business world was selling that site in 2007 instead of
1: 2008. Oh, uh, well, no, it would have been better to sell it now. There's a ridiculous prices going for, for startups and things these days.
0: That's true. Although running it, actually, maybe not. Here, I'll tell you why. Because Facebook, you know, that site lives on advertising and um, Google Ads. And the value of a page view has really been declining because if you can't wildly grow your traffic, you really can't make much money anymore because Facebook has so many page views that they, they have, I don't know, virtually infinite inventory of advertising.
1: Yeah, and look, we're running Facebook ads at the moment, and it's definitely the, the best channel of anything we, we do use. And obviously, my other non-flying background is, is marketing side of things. So. Uh, and that's where I was interested in you know, how much traffic you get for your riding. And I guess if, if you've got any tips for, for aviation companies, like often you go to an aviation company website, and there's just no text there at all. There's a couple of photos some really small amount of text. But um, I would imagine, yeah. you know, especially for you, write it for the R forty four and things like that, where it's a it's a considerable amount of work and and text you have on that page, and that pays off
0: in in the search results. Yeah, first of all, I should I should back up a little bit and say, um, you know, I'm not sorry about selling Photo dot Net for maybe a dollar less than I could have gotten, uh, or me and my friends could have gotten. But uh, you know, I, I didn't start it with a commercial intent. Of course, I started in nineteen ninety three and. People said, Philip, why are you putting your effort into this? You know, it's dumb. You know, you're not going to make any money. You can't sell ads. And I said, you know, I don't care. You know, I don't need to make money every minute of every day. This is my hobby. I'm using MIT's computers, MIT's network. It's not costing me anything, except a little time. And then um, 14 years later, when I sold it for a few million dollars, The same people said, Philip, you're a genius. You know, (laughs) back in 1993, you saw that this was going to make money one day. Well, you know, I'm not really sure I'd see that far in advance. Um, So, yeah, text, it is interesting. Commercial companies are very stingy with text, you know, and very stingy with teaching. And I think it's strange. Whenever people say, well, how do I get more visitors to my site? I would say, well, I put something useful on your site. You know, if your close friend of mine works at a – a pharmaceutical company and you know I said well god they could have a high school biology textbook you know they could just produce a free high school biology textbook and put it on their site and drive a lot of traffic and a lot of people would be grateful that this big rich pharma company instead of giving them a bunch of marketing stuff about how much better you feel if you take some pill um they say hey that's where my kids uh go and uh learn their biology because a lot of high schools have adopted it you know um, so yeah, I think aviation companies could could benefit from that. They have a huge number of people that know a lot, and you know why not just share your knowledge as a marketing technique? Um, you know, if it doesn't, it's not the, if it's not if it's not that effective in terms of marketing. Well, at least it was something useful to have done. Whereas a failed advertising campaign, you know, that's that's just a waste of time and money for everybody.
1: And often, when you're selling a you know a product, and that product may be, you know either aircraft time or um, you know equipment for helicopters and things like that, you, you often can't charge for the the information. And so, yeah, giving the the training, the information, or the good advice away as the entry point is uh, is often the way to go. All right. Yeah. I was going to, if we can just quickly talk about your angel flight involvement, uh, Philip you doing that sort of, is that in, yeah. You're doing that in the PC12, or is that a range of machines?
0: Well, we just got the PC12, me and a partner, um, a, uh, a few months ago. So we haven't we haven't done much with it. You know, we're still getting all the squawks nailed down, and getting ourselves fully trained up. I did it mostly in my friend's um, Cessna Mustang business jet. You know, I always with the uh, With the Cirrus, I felt like the kindest thing I could do for somebody who was sick was, uh, you know, get them a trip in a Honda Accord instead of the Cirrus. (laughs) And they wouldn't be assaulted by the uh, 96 decibels of interior noise and the bad climate control. So only with the jet or maybe the PC-12 do I feel like, you know, finally there's something that's comfortable enough that somebody would want to do it. Um but yeah with the jet we had a lot of interesting flights. Uh unfortunately a friend of mine's mom had ovarian cancer and we would fly her back and forth to Martha's Vineyard uh from Boston to so she could get her cancer treatment. We uh picked up a uh, kidney in New Hampshire and um we flew it to I think it was uh an exchange point in Pennsylvania where we met a King era that had come from the Midwest and uh so we picked up a kidney from the Midwest and we gave them a kidney from New Hampshire, it was some kind of weird three-way kidney swap. Um, so that was uh, pretty rewarding. One time in my friend's chat, we went down to the uh, Turks and Caicos Islands to deliver some re- relief supplies after the Haitian earthquake. Um, I wonder if this is too raw for uh, your radio program, you might have to edit this out, but a friend of mine is a really sort of hard-bitten professional pilot, yep. chain-smoking type. And uh, he he was flying a PC-12 for a rich guy who volunteered the aircraft to Haitian Relief. And Dan Rather, they were flying Dan Rather and a CBS News team around, along with some uh, pallets of cargo in the back. So the CBS people are trying to get... Some uh, good color of all these good Samaritans who are helping the Haitians. These wonderful, warm-hearted people, and of course, my friend Chris. You know, he's 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 not there because he's passionate about Haiti. It's his job to fly the PC12. He doesn't really care. He goes wherever the PC12 goes.
1: Yeah.
0: They turned the cameras on this pilot, who they think is a a great humanitarian, and they said, Chris, you know, well, what do you think of this operation? You know, and and what we're doing here, what what you're accomplishing here? And he said, Well, you know. Haiti was a shithole before this earthquake, and I'm sure it'll be a shithole after all this relief effort uh, has been accomplished.
1: And like (laughs) that didn't get away?
0: (laughs) That that did not go to the air. (laughs) So, so yes, I, too, participated in the Haitian um, uh, hurricane relief. Um, We took, uh, like I said, tents, tents, To uh, Turks and Caicos that were then ferried to a pretty remote area in a uh, beachcraft barren.
1: Excellent. All right. Well, is there. I don't know. We've covered a bit of territory. Let's uh, look at at closing that up now. Uh, If you could go back in time to when you're first learning to fly a helicopter, is there a couple of tips you would have liked to have picked up earlier rather than later in the
0: game? I guess, yeah, for all my flight instruction, I wish somebody had told me that there's nothing interesting happening inside the aircraft, you know, that it's all. Attitude and power and everything else is is kind of down in the noise. So basically, you know, be looking outside 95 percent of the time and find an instructor who can limit his or her pointers to things to do with the aircraft attitude and things to do with the aircraft power. Uh, I don't think there's that many of them, again, because most instructors don't have, don't seem to have thought about what they're teaching.
1: I I know learning like I was a terrible you know looking at the gauges because you know everyone keeps hammering away about the attitude uh, but at the same time they say you hold your height and hold your speed and things like that so I remember uh, this back in you know early fixed wing training as a kid really hammering really trying to hold the height and the airspeed and everything right and I could hear these guys hammering on about the attitude the whole time and uh, yeah it didn't click until quite a, a while later
0: yeah but you know anybody who can if you can hold a constant attitude, everything else takes care of itself. so yeah, telling somebody to you know hold your airspeed or watch your airspeed or something i mean that's that's exactly the opposite of what a instructor should be telling um, the students and actually in, in instrument training in the air in airplanes, one thing I'll often do is cover up everything except the attitude indicator and have actually, we do this in the helicopter too, and we just have the pilot try to hold a constant attitude on the attitude indicator, you know, within one or two degrees. And then after a few minutes we'll take everything out and we'll you know we'll take off the post-its and we'll see that, you know, by really precise attention to the attitude indicator, the helicopter, you know, may have might have only gained a couple hundred feet of altitude. And maybe you've lost 20 degrees of heading, but you know you almost would be within within an instrument clearance, not scanning any other gauge besides the attitude indicator, which is oddly enough the opposite of how the FAA tells pilots to do instrument flying. They say you know, have this big scan where you go around in a circle, and you know they tell people to give essentially a, one sixth of their attention to the attitude indicator. If you look at how real pilots fly high-performance aircraft like jets you know, I think you'll find that they're spending ninety percent of their time on the attitude indicator, which is actually how people fly VFR. You know, VFR, you're looking out the window ninety percent of the time. That's your attitude indicator. And then you occasionally glance at the gauges to make sure that, you know, there's no gross error that's developed. So that would be a much better way, and that is how we teach instrument flying. We just say, well look, everything you've done VFR works flying IFR. All you need to do is learn how to really concentrate on the attitude indicator the same way that you learned how to concentrate on the natural horizon and, you know, you don't need a new scan or a new technique. Yeah, very much. And the military um,
1: i have done for the helicopters is very much, it's exactly just what you said. is pretty much predominantly based on the AI and then uh, scanning off the AI each time. But, yeah, again, most of the focus on the, was on the AI. And exactly what you said, uh, going through tight transition, uh ian gordon was one of my instructors he's now out he's now a doctor but uh for pretty much 45 minutes straight he had everything else covered up and just hammered me and uh the only gauge i had to look at was the uh was the uh ai and then he'd un- you know he obviously take off the cover of one of the other ones but uh there's one point yeah he hammered me in that and 45 minutes of that was to basically uh, fix up some errors i had uh, before a flight test so it's uh, <laughs> a pretty trusted and proven uh, method Brilliant. Well, look, um, Philip, we might close up there. So, look, thank you very much for sharing your time again, and and again, you know, some different perspectives. And thank you again for the writing you've done. And if folks, if you're listening, if you haven't gone and read any of Philip's articles, uh, Philip Greenspun dot com. There'll be links to the site in the show notes as well. Uh, but uh, again, uh, on behalf of everyone else, thank you so much, Philip, for your time.
0: Thanks. I look forward to. Uh... Coming to Australia reasonably soon and uh, flying around there. I miss, I miss the country. I haven't been there since uh, 2000, I think.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, let me know and uh, look me up. Okay. Thanks very much. You can check out many of Phil's articles on his website at philip.greenspun.com. He also has a, a Wikipedia page that covers many of his achievements and some of the phil, uh, philanthropic Uh, Projects he's involved in if you want to look that up. If you've got something out of the interview, please do drop Philip an email or leave a a comment on the episode uh, show notes to keep that conversation or that discussion going. In the spirit of continual education, if you want to learn more about marketing your aviation business, then a quick plug for the sponsors of today's episode trainmorepilots.com. If you head over to the website, you'll be able to download a list of online tools and sites that can help you with your marketing, especially if you're looking at the online marketing around attracting new students or clients. So that website address is trainmorepilots.com. When you are online, if you're enjoying the episodes that we're doing, then there are a heap of ways to get involved and actually join the listener community that's starting to really gel together. Uh, You now have fellow listeners in 48 different countries. So come and share some of your experience and some of your own stories. There is, of course, the the show website at rotarywingshow.com. You'll find photos and videos of past guests there, plus links to most of the resources that we mentioned in the episodes. You can also leave a a voicemail message there or ask a question that I can play back in a a future episode of the show. So a quick search in iTunes, Twitter, or Facebook for Rotary Wing Show will also get you connected in with the community there. Okay, so look, I don't have a, a quote today, so I'm running with the question of the day. And I want you to leave your questions on social media for me. So what is the rotary wing type you would most like to have a fly of or to fly in? So what is the rotary wing type you would most like to have a fly of or to fly in? So my answer is the, the V22. I just reckon they're an awesome, sexy, amazing looking machine. And uh, looking forward to hearing your answers. So let me know. You've been listening to the rotary wing show. This is episode 16. You can find all the other episodes in iTunes if you're new to the show and joining us for the first time. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Have a great week. I hope you get a bunch of flying hours in and see you in the next episode.